Tissue of Stanford. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I am Mark Molyneux. This is a show about housing, politics, economics, morality, etc., etc. Today in the program, Spotlight on Portland, we have on Holly Balcom. Holly is a housing activist in Portland, Oregon, which she will tell us all about. Let's just get into it. Uh, welcome, Holly. Hi. Yeah. Not good to speak to you, Mark. Yeah. So um, I, I guess if people are on housing Twitter, I'm sure that they've seen seen you uh, quite a bit. You're one of the you know, most active voices, I feel, and you know, give a perspective of what's going on in Portland. So I guess uh, what I'm like wondering is, like, yeah, what, what first made you uh, into someone who's just completely devoted to the housing scene in, in Portland? Oh, well, I, um, I bought this, this tiny little ranch house about six years ago, and in three years, um, we were right across from a park, and in three years, there were all these people living in their cars across the street from us in the park, and in the meantime, our house had appreciated 50%, and just down the street, there was a literal burned-out shell of a Taco Bell that the neighbors were fighting 40 apartments in. And, and, and I just was looking around going, none of this makes any sense. None of this is right. There's something really messed up here. And um, we have, as I'm, I'm sure you know, we have some really great journalists doing really great work here um, on, on, you know, the roots of the housing crisis and, and the Portland-specific nature of it. Of, of how ours is going. And um, so I started reading what they were doing, going to their meetup groups, and just got really involved that way. So, I mean, that sounds like you were succeeding uh, in appreciating home value. What's not to love? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people. Uh, I mean, what's not to love is it was, it was uh, you know, it was like less than a thousand square feet, and I had surprise twins, and on top of my other two kids. And so all of a sudden we had four kids. And looking, you know, looking around and it's like, you know, we're both professional healthcare IT workers and there was nothing for us to buy. And it was just like, if, if, it's, if it's this horrible for us, everybody who makes less than us, which is, you know, a lot of people in Portland must be really suffering. And, and you know, it doesn't really matter if your house appreciates 50% if you, if it's not the right house and you, and you, you know, you, you do something different. You can't move. Everybody's stuck. Did you feel like uh, neighbors around you were feeling the same way you were, or was there much of that kind of solidarity, or was there different kind of viewpoints? You know, this this was a really a very nimby neighborhood. It's kind of it's kind of a famous. It was Rose City Park in Portland, which is known for being a very nimby neighborhood. They did not want anything to change, and they really did not want any new housing to come in. Um, it was it was kind, we were seeing. Um, it, it was a very a neighborhood full of older people, and we, as I was living there, we were seeing all the lawns be torn up and like gardens be put in, and young families were moving in. And so, it'd be interesting to see, like, maybe go back now and see if they've changed their minds. Then, but at the time, it was a lot of people who had lived there for forty years and just were not willing to to accept any level of change. And I mean, from the perspective of the Bay Area, Portland certainly seems like. The first, you know, overflow zone. I, I've I've known a lot of you know personal friends who have moved up there recently, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, do you see? Is is there a, is that something you can feel the 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 wave of California uh, immigrants? I, 
I mean, this is not the first wave of California immigrants. It's just been, it's been a, a relief valve for California for, I, I, I was born in, in Oregon and it's as long as I can remember, it's always been a joke about Californians moving up here, but you know, and that's why I am kind of involved in California housing Twitter to the level I am because it's like, you know, we got to know what's, what's coming and we, we need to see what's happening because we have so many people here who stand up in community meetings and say, I'm from San Francisco. And if you don't want to be San Francisco, this is what you got to do, you know? And, and so it's like, we're, we're, uh, you guys are exporting a lot of, a lot of things to us right now. Is, is it right to say, I mean, from the perspective down here, uh, it feels like things are just much more sane and actually things are growing in a way and it feels like people are working together in a way. What What is the general landscape as far as, uh, you know, as far as I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Henry Kramer, uh, something you said like the other week, just, you know, tenant, tenant right activists, they spend time working for tenant rights in Oregon and fighting landlords and there isn't so much of a tension of them uh, fighting to preserve exclusionary zoning. And it sounds like everyone's kind of really pushing together on the same page to make change happen. Uh, uh, as opposed to down here, we get a lot of kind of tribal tensions <laughs> at, yeah. at its worst. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I, you know, I think, you know, just one of the things is up until, you know, even in the, the 90s, Portland was still extremely affordable. You know, you had um, a lot of musicians coming from here and you had like, you know, the My Private Idaho years, you know, nobody was, was living in, in Portland if they had money. And so it was a place where a lot of punk bands and, and anarchists lived. And, and so we just ha- we, we don't have those entrenched interests to the level I think that San Francisco does. And, um, you know, this is, this is not a great thing, but we just haven't had an organized tenant group we haven't tenants haven't seen themselves as a, as a group that was able to organize until very recently but i think at the same time that the unity movement has been started in portland we've also seen a a new tenant organizing movement that i am extremely excited about but you know a lot of the people who are organizing these things are coming from the same they're coming from the same background. They're literally, you know, the people who worked together in other areas before. And so we have these pre-existing relationships, but without the, the established stakeholders um, that might cause some, like, you know, some bad blood from his, historical issues. Like it sounds like you guys have in San Francisco. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to condemn any, any groups, but there is something to be said about the newer groups kind of have an urgency to have change as opposed to, an older group might have kind of a preservation first mindset and say like, yeah. well, here's the playbook we've had for 40 years. And unfortunately, I mean, and I, I don't mean to condemn any, any work, but you know, if, if you need a lot more than the classic playbook to really help tenants, cause it's not, yeah. it's not enough. No, no, it's not. And it's definitely not enough. You know, I think the, the classic playbook has not been enough for growing the housing supply. And it's not been enough for protecting tenants. And, um, yeah, so I think just, just the, the newness of the situation. And also, there just there isn't a huge gap in the rental market between the very top end of the rental market and the very bottom end. I mean, you know, you're talking a cheap apartment is 800 a month and, and an expensive apartment is 1800 a month. You know, it's, it's, there's just not that much of a divide. So I think everybody who's a tenant can kind of look at it and say, you know, we're not that far away from each other. We're all in this together at least you know in theory some of us are able to come together and do that so one thing as far as coming together i don't know if i 
I I don't know if, if this can really contribute a lot, but certainly something I see as a big difference is uh, we have Prop 13 in California, and up mm-hmm. there in Oregon, you have your your own spin on it that came. Uh, I think it was like early '90s, right? Or mid, actually, the mid to late '90s. I think I think Measure Five was was '95, and Measure Fifty, I believe, was '97. Yeah, and I guess uh, the the big difference is Prop 13 is every time you you sell it, it resets. Uh, whereas yeah. Measure Five is is like vacancy control for apartments; it stays down forever. Uh, it or, stays down forever, yeah, and it's rent rent control, so they can only your assessed value can only raise three um, percent per year. So I live close to the center of Portland. My sister lives actually on the same street, but like a hundred blocks out. And I pay um, somewhere like a quarter, a third of the real market value, assessed value in taxes, and she pays the full freight on hers. And, it, and, and I know people who live closer to the center of Portland or in, in areas that were maybe historically disinvested, and they're paying 12% of their assessed market value. And it's just an accident of where you live. I certainly wasn't here, you know, when, when this house was built or when it was when Measure 50 went in. It's got, been through three owners since then, but somehow I get to inherit this tax break where my sister never had that chance because she bought further out east. It's just a crazy system. Yeah, I guess it's two different weird wrinkles. In California, you know, it lives within you and you can't move. So it kind of, yeah. it's part of your personality. If you're a Prop 13 homeowner, it, it's like some, it's like you're an aristocrat. It, it is bequeathed upon you and you live with it, whereas opposed to Oregon, it kind of goes with the land and it's just, it seems like it's, it's own weird stuff. Yeah, the idea like it, it really separates neighborhoods as opposed to here, it kind of, you know, has its own patches everywhere throughout the entire area. It's, it's uh, it, it, does it does it really like change the way people interact with neighborhood versus neighborhood up in, in Portland? Um, you know, I, I actually don't think I, I even though our property tax assessments are public information, I really don't think that most people have um, an awareness of how unfair and unequal the tax system is. I was just talking with somebody with from Gresham, which is a, a less wealthy suburb to the east of Portland, and she is involved in the Yimby group, and she didn't know how, how unequal it is, and she was just furious, and she had every right to be furious. I think one of the other kind of twists of the, the, the fact that our tax break stays with the land is that, of course, the places that now have the biggest tax break are the places... Um, the historically black and disinvested areas of Portland that have seen the most gentrification. So because those tax breaks stayed with those houses, as long as the houses aren't um, redeveloped or substantially remodeled, uh, that's just been like, that's been fuel on the fire of gentrification. And it has almost completely pushed the African-American population out of those areas. And I think that it's worth it's worth touching on that uh, right now. Is I mean, you talk a lot about how you know economic and racial segregation goes with single family zoning, you know, essentially as a rule by design. But Portland and Oregon as a whole has an especially notorious uh, history of of racial segregation and white supremacy. Uh, how do how do you see that reflected in in the housing scene in, in your own experience? Um, you know, it's it's there. The Oregon was founded as a 
state where black people were not allowed to live as a way to get around um, the compromise where you had to add one free state and one slave state. And so Oregon was just a state where you couldn't have any people of color at all. And we've never really gotten past that. They were kind of only let in um, begrudgingly during World War II when we needed people in the, to, to make the warships um, and, and very segregated up on the north part of Portland. And um, that area flooded, and then they were led into the northeast part of Portland, but very heavily redlined. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's the same story as in other cities. I think, you know, we just had a much smaller population. We also had um, a, a large um, Japanese population that was almost completely cleared out of downtown and sent to internment camps. So, you know, these, these areas of town, um, the, the, the black area of town was disinvested and then gentrified. The, um, the Japanese area of town was disinvested and then it's still just kind of disinvested. There's nothing has ever really happened with that. So it's, it's not an, a pretty history. It's, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know how it compares to other cities, but I, I would say it's it's um, you know it's it's an inescapable fact of our very recent history that we all have to reckon with. And I guess it's and I guess the opposite, uh, or I guess the the neighborhoods that have the opposite gentrification is it's, it's as I understand the southwest area of, of Portland is considered to be the most affluent and kind of nimbyish in that sense. You know the whole the whole west side of Portland has always been richer um, when they our famous freeway revolt. Um, where they tore out the the um, the highway on the west side, they just literally rebuilt it right on the east side. And so for a, a long time, if you were white and you had money, you lived in the west side. And I would say it's maybe only in the last 20 years that people have started, that um, whiter, more affluent people have started to move into the east side and have wanted to live there as well. When you when you see like, you know, the Portlandia sketches or whatever, they're almost all happening in the in the east side of Portland. That's where the, you know, the hip shops and the boutiques and, and all the ridiculous stuff is happening. Yes, I, I saw references to the whole uh, freeway revolt. Is, is that a, was environmental, uh, like environmentalist the main force behind it? Or what's the story? Because I wasn't able to pull up really quick. So you can just kind of give me some background. Oh, the, um, yeah, the, the freeway revolt there, there were actually kind of a number of interconnected ones there. Um, there was one where they, they tore up a highway that was going right through the downtown waterfront and put in the park, and that was kind of a huge success. And um, the federal government wasn't going to give the money for it, so they actually raised the taxes and, and paid for it themselves, and that was back in the 70s. And then they used the money that was going to go for the freeway and ended up building, uh, eventually, you know, like 10 years later, they ended up building the first light rail in Portland. And so that was kind of a huge when for the environmental group, they were super happy about it and have been patting themselves on the back ever since. Um, there were also a number of kind of like minor freeway revolts that mainly consisted of rich neighborhoods um, pushing neighbor pushing freeways into the poorer, blacker neighborhoods. Um, that's especially I-5 um, in the area that I live in, which is the um, the Rose Quarter District. Uh, they, they went right through um, a ton of just thousands of black homes and black owned businesses and tore them down to make room for the freeway. And then this, this happened during what years? Um, that was, I, I believe the sixties. Wow. So, so they actually, so they actually had an, a working freeway. Cause I, I feel like most cities have 
have the same history of the highway through the city and the yeah. you know slum clearance. I, I it seems wild that it happened effectively, you know, twice to have something built and then re- rebuilt across town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, sorry, the, 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 when they tore out Harbor Drive in the seventies, then they, then they built it on the east side of the river. And I think they were originally going to do it through what is, what is the Laurelhurst neighborhood, which is a very rich neighborhood on the east side and moved it into the the black neighborhood instead as a result. So I think, you know, it was kind of a, an environmentalist success on the west side and then it just pushed it over into the neighborhoods with less power. So in other words, it was getting rid of the dependence on cars, but not really getting rid of it. It was just... No. Wow. Yeah. It, it was made literally nimbied the freeway. <laughs> but but not but not to replace it with anything that was truly equitable, just to just to push it out of their backyards, as it were. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the the fact that that it did turn into the light rail and max um, is probably a good thing, and is part of the reason why Portland has a relatively low share of, of single occupancy vehicle commuters compared to other West Coast U.S. cities, and and I believe some of the East Coast ones too were were still pretty high. But yeah, yeah. In the end, it was kind of like as long as it was out of sight, they didn't really care where it went. Yeah, uh, I mean, and I guess that's in that's brought up as you know, it's I, I've only taken one trip to uh, to Portland. That was uh, mm-hmm. a year and a half ago to visit friends, and yeah, it is it is a dense, walkable city in a lot of areas, and uh, uh, and I, I guess I was just trying to understand kind of the landscape of how the city governs. Just look at the mm-hmm. city, uh, just look at the city profile. And everything is pretty contiguous. It's one big shape, and it has a, an urban growth boundary, which kind of affects the way it, it, it behaves. Can you maybe talk a bit about uh, the urban growth boundary uh, and you know what this kind of means for Portland today? Yeah, well, that was that was we had some a, a great history of land use nerds going back to the '70s who pushed for this urban growth boundary, um, and and it's, it actually I believe applies to all the cities in Oregon. And they were really worried about losing farmland and really worried about losing forest land. And so they put the urban growth boundary in place. And the trade-off that they made that they understood that they were making at the time was if we're not going to be sprawling out, we need to densify within our cities. And so that was then the case of a, a number of court cases from the 70s through today and also, you know, legal ballot initiatives and legislative initiatives Um to slowly kind of chip away at the single-family zoning. I, you know, we, ADUs are legal everywhere. We have um, allowed a lot more density uh, on our transit corridors and arterials than I think a lot of other cities have, um, a lot of other West Coast sprawly cities have. And so even back then, they understood that the urban growth boundary meant that you had to allow the density to go somewhere. Now, today, today that means um, the, that um, apartments are still illegal every in only, uh, sorry, are still legal in only 10% of Portland land. So they really tried to push it into the smallest possible box that they could and leave the rest of it for single-family homes. But in, in other words, is there, are there many ways people try to get around it as far as sprawl goes, or does all of the, I guess, demand need to end up somewhere within the city uh, or, 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 or does it get pushed out? Um, it, you know, it, it definitely gets pushed out. A lot of it has gone into, um, our, into right over the 
bridge into uh, Washington in Vancouver, which has kind of become a bedroom community for Portland and doesn't have an urban growth boundary. So that's just happened, I believe, most uh, over the last 10 years since we've lived here. It's, it's gone from just a very small community to, you know, I work with half a dozen people who live in Vancouver and commute every day. And so, the, you know, the, the roads have become quite a bit more um, choked then. We have a lot more people just making, you know, hour-plus commutes now than we did 10 years ago. So, yeah, so in the 70s, put this, they put this green belt into place, and people understood, yes, we have to grow within this area. Is When you hear people push back against densification, it, what, what, do they tend to acknowledge that trade-off? Or what, 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 is, what is the general pushback you get from people who say that you know, densification is not something they can support now? Yes, and and what one thing I find amazing about Portland is everybody knows about the urban growth boundary, and everybody knows about our inventory of buildable lands. In order to keep our urban growth boundary, um, you know, appropriate for this for the size of the city, we have to keep twenty years of buildable lands for all income levels, um, always within the urban growth boundary. So if we ever start running low of that. Uh, then then we have to make the decision whether we expand the urban growth boundary or whether we densify in the city. And, you know, for the past 20 years, I would say Portland has almost always made the choice to expand the urban growth boundary. So we have around the edges of Portland, it's it's it gets pretty sprawly. You know, it looks just pretty much like any other city anywhere. It, it doesn't look like the Portlandia that you've seen. If you start driving out eastward or, or south of Portland, it's just a lot of single-family homes and a lot of big box stores. And how much how much has that been? If you imagine it's like, I guess, you're adding layers on the city into the green belt, like what percentage or I guess how thick is the additions they've been adding? So in the um, 80s and 90s, they they really expanded out to the east. They annexed a whole bunch more land in um, to the to the city. I, I as a percentage of land area, it's it's got to be like 30 or 40 percent um, mm. of the total area of Portland now. And I'm just estimating from the map in my head, so I could be completely off, but it it was a lot. And um, and and that's why the average density of Portland is actually closer to four thousand, which I believe is half of like Seattle's average density, and I think Seattle is about half of San Francisco's average density. If that just gives you an idea of of what most of Portland looks like, so it's like during these times, the the people really did not fight well to maintain the the purpose of of the urban growth boundary. No, no, I think, you know, that was, and that was, from what I understand of those times, that's just what people, what people really wanted, the the pull of the single family home and the pull of, you know, at that time, you could still drive a 10 minute commute to downtown if you lived in any one of these places that was being annexed 10 to 15 minutes. So, and that's just not, that's just not available anymore. But but right now it's, it is held with a, a bit more of a sacred attitude to say that, this is this is not an option, or are the NIMBY folks saying, "Yeah, we can afford to to bite into that urban growth boundary"? Oh no, they absolutely are. Yeah, they say they say you know our urban growth boundary is working really well. We have this twenty year inventory of land, and if it's not good enough, you just need to expand the urban growth boundary. And we still hear that quite a bit. Um, I have you know I have started noticing maybe just in the last 
two or three years, that if you say, do you really want to expand it more? Do you really want more people commuting on our roads? Then they'll say, well, you know, maybe densification is something we could consider. But before that, I I never heard that. It just people just wanted to keep pushing it out. Well, it's, it's it's certainly nice to hear that, yeah, environmentalists and densification are really heavily aligned. Uh, I'm certainly mm-hmm. jealous of having this growth boundary to, to deal with as opposed to, you know, around the Bay Area, just endless cities in every direction, effectively, with no... Well, and, yes, and and the two things, the growth boundary and our, our metro regional government, um, the, two, the two of them together, I think, have forced us at every step for 40 years to explicitly have the conversation. Do you want to expand or do you want to grow up or out, you know, up or out? And so it's like you can kind of see the push and pull of this over the years as it's gone one way or the other, but it really has resulted in in a more compact um, uh, form than I think a lot of other places have achieved. And so those two things have forced us to see to see the trade-offs of, you know, you, of the farmland and the forest land and the the nature that, Portland environmentalists love to say they love versus, you know, what we're doing in the city rather than my understanding of the Bay Area is you guys all have a hundred cities working against each other all the time. Oh, yeah, it's it's a nightmare. Do the, do the small cities up there, I guess like cities like Beaverton or something make, do they matter as far as the housing discussion goes? Or are they kind of on for the ride or what? Well, you know, the metro, the metro government covers them too. Hmm. And um, we also have some unincorporated areas of some of the counties that are that are still essentially part of Portland but uh, I believe not under metro control but are still you know part of our um, commuting catchment area and so they've been something of relief valve as well but um, even you know like we've got some some great transit-oriented development in uh, Hillsborough which is where all the tech companies are um, but they've they've done some real densification in uh, around their max stations um, that's you know, when you go there, it's like it's it's all like tech bros and yuppie type things and all the places that cater to them. But it's still a hell of a lot more dense than just a, a park and ride, you know. So is is the metro government, is this just 100 percent? This is working great for Portland and every every city that is growing would be lucky to have something like this. Or like, what, what should someone know uh, before they try to imitate Portland and, and their metro government? Uh, you know, I, I think it's great. I really love it. I think, you know, a lot depends on the leadership. And we have had in the past leadership that maybe didn't see itself as, as needing to assert much over the city governments. But right now we have a president who is really kind of flexing her muscles and bringing everybody, bringing all the different um, city governments together. And I think really forcing them to have conversations with each other about the trade-offs. So I think I think the metro government is great. I think more cities should do it. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I really don't see a downside there. But, but people love local control. Well, what's not to, <laughs> what's not, what's not to love? I mean, yeah, so so if you love local control, you just have another level of local control. You know, like we get to vote for two levels of city of the city and the metro government. You know, there's a whole other set of public hearings to show up to if you really love that. Ooh. Yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, around here, you still you have that extra layer in the Bay Area, but they're just kind of incredibly ineffectual, powerless levels of government that mm-hmm. kind of only exist on paper. It's that sounds sounds awe inspiring. Have one that actually has the muscle to flex. 
They, they do, and you know, I think they just didn't realize it until recently. Um, the 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 Yimbies have started showing up to their hearings, and they're kind of just excited to see it. They're like excited that somebody's interested in what they're doing. Excited that somebody's like you know giving giving them some some public feedback on what they're doing. So it's actually been kind of refreshing for for all of us, I think. But what's what's the mechanism? Let's say one city under the metro purview just says, you know what, you know, we're down zoning everywhere. Uh, we're you know we're just explicitly exclusionary. You know, we just we're we're full, uh, and they're just being a bad citizen. What does the metro? Can they revoke their their zoning? I don't know. I don't think that they can take over the city zoning, but the metro does own a lot of land within every city, and um, they have not done this. But I believe that they could change the zoning on their land, so they could mm. do a lot more like transit-oriented development without the consent of the city, theoretically, if, if the city didn't want to play. Well, that, that certainly per- perks my ears up to hear that mm-hmm. solutions through uh, municipal ownership or regional municipal ownership of uh, of land directly, that's, that's always yeah. a nice thing to have. <laughs> Yes, and um, in the last election, we just gave, we just voted the metro um, area seven hundred fifty million dollars for an affordable housing bond, and they have never done anything with affordable housing before. So I think they're starting to kind of realize, oh, we own all this land. You know, we we own all this land near transit. Maybe there's some things we could be doing with it. And when they are doing stuff with their land, do they tend to uh, sell it off or do they tend to actually retain it or do they have an idea of trying to make sure they don't lose too much of their holdings? I don't, I don't think they've done anything yet with it. I, you know, I think they just haven't even, haven't even begun to think about it. Like, for example, they own, they own a giant, they own a 36-hole golf course with, uh, with broken underwater sprinklers so they can never meet their water conservation goals because these sprinklers are always leaking into the ground and it's just ridiculous. And so I'm like, man, that's a, that's a lot of land and you could fix your water conservation issue if that was housing. So we're kind of, we're kind of starting to suggest this to the the counselors and the president and they seem, they seem receptive, you know, but, but we just, nothing, nothing's happened yet because I think it's also new to all of us. That's certainly some fun chips to play with, and that's that's oh yeah, that's an exciting exciting thing to have. Certainly, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and, and I guess you're talking about that's one way that things are pushed back is at this this metro level. But I mean, throughout the entire state, you're seeing some changes in Oregon. I guess can you can you talk about what has been happening at the state level, both for housing production as well as uh, tenants issues? Yes. So um, there was a big push. We just had a whole bunch of um, of self-identified renters elected to our state legislature in the last last couple of elections, and they have really been taking the tenants' rights thing seriously. And so they passed the first um, state statewide rent control um, bill in, I believe, in the United States, and it's. It's it's not I guess rent control is maybe not the right word. It's it's more of an anti gouging provision um, where nobody can raise rents more than seven percent in a year, and um, also it has uh, vacancy control if if um, an eviction was for not not for a just cause. So the if you, the landlord evicts somebody without demonstrating just cause, they can't raise the rent for the next tenant. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I think that's kind of a one of a kind thing in the United States, and I was I was I sent in testimony for it. I 
you know, I, I talked to a lot of other Yimbies about supporting it, and um, I was really proud that we did it, and I was proud to be a supporter of it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to, I guess, enforce uh, the the uh, just cause provision is to tie it in with vacancy control. Um, yeah, I mean, gouging, California is looking at gouging, but uh, we don't have the luxury of even uh, looking at vacancy control in any sense because uh, statewide statewide laws in the books. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a lot. A lot of people will spend a lot of time arguing over what words you're using. Is it rent control? No, it's rent gouging. No, it's rent stabilization. But I mean, I think it does. It, I'm not sure it really matters what you call it. But I mean, I think it's good for tenants to make sure and to make sure you can't kick kicked out for any reason. You have to have some sort of limit. Uh, and gouging yeah. is kind of the baseline of what you need to start with. Yeah, and I think you know if you if you don't have if you just have a just cause protection and you don't have the gouging protection, then they can just raise the rent and kick the people out by economic means if they can't if oh, they can't yeah. justify it any other way. Yeah, so that's I mean it's an exciting start. I mean some people, I, I, Michael Weinstein down in L.A. was condemning it, saying it's not good enough. I don't think that's a very good attitude <laughs> to, to say. Well, like, you know, and and to be honest, um, our. Uh, some of our tenants activist groups in Portland um, were were big supporters of it, and some of them are also saying it's not far enough. And and um, you know, I I can't argue with them. I think you know it, it probably isn't far enough. I think we could go further. For one thing, they probably should have lifted the um, the preemption on local control of rent control. Uh, right now, no no city can can do their own version of rent control. We all have to follow the state, and that's oh, wow. been in place for like. Like I think this is the fifties, and um, so they they could have made that a part of six hundred eight, but they chose not to. And so um, there there's a push to get that taken care of as well. But but I I don't know if there's as much if there's much um, energy at the state level for that. Wow, that that sounds to me, like does that push all the tenant organizing into pushing at the state level? Because a lot of times you will see cities when when there is local provisions, that can be a big way they, you know, put in energy and can suck energy for fighting to keep it as opposed to, uh, that's a very, very different to have it all centralized to the state level like that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that I actually hadn't considered. Um, you know, in Portland, um, we had a commissioner who, who put in um, a relocation money. So if somebody gets evicted and they, without cause, they get some relo money and a couple of other protections like that that skirt around the edges of it. And our tenants have put a lot of energy into organizing around those um, provisions, but it's not, you know, it's not explicitly rent control. So, so maybe you're right. Maybe all the energy goes to the state instead. Yeah. I mean, I was hearing stuff like the Berkeley tenants union from people I know live in Berkeley, like they're, they only basically are focused on the local rent control board. And that's like really, mm-hmm. and there's, they don't have a whole lot of say at the state level. Uh, when, when in fact, yeah. you know, you need a, you need a lot of solidarity throughout the entire uh, state to make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and it really was, you know, a conversation between uh, the Portland um, tenants people and maybe the people around the state who tended to be more like, um, you know, more like low income housing providers um, at the all kind of came together at the state to talk about what kind of bill was acceptable. For for me, um, you know, I had uh, we we have a, a big libertarian streak in Oregon, um, especially the the parts of Oregon that aren't Portland tend to be, um, you know, heavily libertarian, and so a lot of our Yimbies come to Yimbyism through like a property rights 
lens, and they weren't too excited about this anti-gouging bill because they saw it as, you know, an imposition on their property rights as landlords or maybe future landlords, maybe want to be landlords. But um, I, for one of the ways that I, I had success convincing some people was um, these these big increases in rent is typically out-of-state investors who come in and buy up an older apartment building and just raise the rent and raise the rent and raise the rent, and then they turn around and rent it out to richer people. And that doesn't really help us with our local supply issue at all. In fact, it's, it's, it's taking investment money that wants to be, you know, that should be going into building more supply, and it's just recycling existing units. And so for me, anything that pushes the investment away from older apartment buildings and into hopefully building new buildings is a good thing. Uh, so, so I've had some success with uh, the more right-wing, more libertarian uh, yimbies in that. Yeah, there's, there's, in my experience, uh, there, there are two flavors of libertarians uh, or people <laughs> who are like, will talk about property rights. One are people who say property rights are useful and good because they spur production, and if you do it right, you get better outcomes. Uh, and mm-hmm. these people are ultimately pragmatic, and you can reach them, and effectively, you can turn all of them on to land value tax if they're open-minded enough, and you know, then they'll start being tenant rights people even because they'll realize how screwed up land ownership is. Uh, and wow. I, the other type of people just like property rights because they're property rights. And those people are just, you can never reach those people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, ha- we have had a few of them in, in our local Yimby conversations for sure. And, you know, I don't know if it's something about Yimby or what, but there are, it does, I would say just as a generalization, it tends to attract people who liked things to be very simple and very black and white. And so sometimes, um, sometimes helping them to see that, you know, maybe, maybe some of these measures that seem bad at first could have some worthy trade-offs or might be worth doing for other reasons. Uh, has been useful in in opening that discussion up a little bit. Yeah, a lot of people that you know they can they can uh, you know view the optimal policy. It's very hard to kind of see the politics, see about building coalitions, yeah. see about and it's you yeah. know it's it takes a lot of different kinds of people, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, and and you know, uh, helping people helping people understand the concept of coalitions, and a lot of us. Yimbies have not been involved in politics, you know, before. We we don't have any experience with it. So, you know, it's it's hard to look at your ideal policy and see it be mauled by all the other interest groups, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and this is our first experience with that happening. So, um we're we're really lucky in that some of the people who founded Yimby have a lot more political experience than most, most of us and have been able to kind of keep the long per, the long perspective and uh, certainly have talked me down for more than than one panic. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, talk about I guess what is what are what's the topology of all the different uh, groups, both you know kind of YIMBY groups and other kind of you know equity, environmental, like just mm-hmm. like what what is the landscape if you had to know just the 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 tip of of who really is 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 pulling the levers uh, of making things happen in 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 mm-hmm. Portland. Yeah, sure. Well, we have we have a, a longtime environmental group that I am not affiliated with, but ha- um, called A Thousand Friends of Oregon, 
And um, they are they are a land use group going back 40 years who were instrumental in getting, I believe, in getting the urban growth boundary passed. And they started out as a, you know, save the save the birds, save the trees, save the wildlife and, and forest land and farmland group. And then um, recently th- realized that if they were going to save all these things, they needed to be also thinking about land use in the city and helping more people to live who want to live in the city, live in the city so they don't sprawl into the suburbs. And so they started um, Portland for Everyone, which was a more housing options group, kind of a YIMBY affiliated group. And um, that has, has brought a lot of people into, uh, educate a lot of people about what YIMBY is and been kind of a, um, you know, just a good pro-housing voice that had a dedicated staff member, which a lot of other cities don't have or didn't have um, until recently. I think California has paid YIMBY advocates, but like, I don't think Seattle does. Mm. And um, so most of the Portland YIMBYs here are not a part of Portland for everyone, but have certainly, you know, been influenced by the people who work for Portland for everyone. Um, and, and so I think um, they, but Portland for everyone being a coalition group meant that they, they had to be pretty uh, conservative in what they were able to advocate for. And they're, they were limited to just land use issues. They couldn't really comment on things like, inclusionary zoning or rent control or any of the things that, you know, I think you and I agree have to go with the land use portion as well. What about uh, measure, and, measure and five reform? Is that, is that something they're able to talk about? Measure five? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think that there is very little uh, interest except with EMBs in measure five reform. I think, I think everybody, Everybody wants it. Everybody's afraid to mess with it. It is, it is just, I, I don't, you know, I don't, when I talk to just about everybody, they just don't want to even touch it. And even when you point out that I believe more than half of all of Oregonians would actually be paying less tax if you just eliminated majors five and 50, uh, it's still just, it's a scary thing and they just don't even really want to touch it. Yeah. So, you know, that we're going to have, we're going to have to tackle that eventually, you know, the, um, it, it measure five in where I live, where the disparity between the assessed value and the market value is so high, it's a discouragement to redevelopment because if you redevelop, you lose your tax break and then you pay the full value of the land and the full value of the house and the full value, you know, whatever new property you just built. And, um, in other areas of, um, of Portland property taxes are higher than they should be because of measure five and 50, because, you know, my area isn't pulling its fair weight. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Right now it doesn't seem like a lot of people want to fix it, but I, it will definitely have, I, I think at some point we're going to have to confront the fact it's going to have to be addressed. I, I didn't realize that wrinkle. So if you sell it, it doesn't get reset, but if you improve it, it gets reset. If you improve it past a certain percentage. Wow. Like, like if, if you do a gut remodel, it would trigger it to be reset. Wow. That's, that's, yeah. that's some bad incentives to play. It <laughs> is bad incentives. Yes. And so wow. that, you know, one of the um, interesting things is Portland just started, just started requiring that everybody who sells their house have like an energy audit score. Like, like this is how energy efficient your house is. And it's like a one out of a hundred and Portland houses do really poorly compared to the national average. And part of it is because our housing stock is old and drafty because 
nobody wants to nobody wants to put a significant amount of improvements into their home. Wow. I think partially because of Measure Five. Yikes! <laughs> so, well, yeah. I guess if it's if that's not on the table yet, I guess uh, it, you can't keep this in place forever before it really starts to rear its head. So, I guess we'll see how yeah. that develops. There, uh, one um, one area of possible light that I've that I've heard from the from the state level groups um, is there might be some interest in doing something like what, what I think California is thinking about doing, which is split role of the um, commercial and mm-hmm. the residential. Yeah. Because just, just like you guys, our commercial uh, groups are, are benefiting greatly from this. And maybe there might be some more um, interest or energy in, in, in severing those two halves and um, increasing the amount on the commercial property somewhat. Which has its own share of issues, but it certainly would be able to open up all sorts of financing for important infrastructure and so on. But you have to worry about things yeah. like incentivizing commercial now instead of residential and other, other in, unintended consequences that were. Yes, that is that is an aspect of the way the California um, way Prop 13 works that Oregon doesn't seem to have. And I'm not sure, I actually don't know why that is. Maybe you know why that is. But in Oregon, something about the way Measures 5 and 50 works does not incentivize um, commercial over residential. We just don't have that jobs, housing, and balance that you guys do. Maybe, maybe it has to do with less of the fragmented government because you see it. You see the worst fiscalization uh, at the smallest, most petty little cities that try to squeeze yeah. every bit to the, their budget they can. So uh, maybe, maybe that's the main reason you avoided those problems. It, it, it could be. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So as far as um, as these groups getting together and building coalitions, uh, there is the success at the state level. At least it's going on right now. Uh, and as I understand, got through committee uh, HB two zero zero one. That sounds like a pretty exciting thing. Can you talk about what what that this is uh, going to do? Yes. So HB two thousand one would um, would relegalize duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes in every city over with a population over twenty five. Which is, I believe, something like twenty cities in in Oregon would that would apply to, and um, and so I, I I believe it means every lot has to have some or all of those options, or I and I think it includes the cottage cluster or like a like a bungalow court as well for the larger lots, and so um, the cities would have I think three years to comply with that, and then. They they would have to start letting be, be legal everywhere, and in cities of ten thousand to twenty five thousand, they would have to allow at least a duplex on every lot. So it would be just a you know just a, a huge. Uh, I, I, it's it's not a radical change because it's really just relegalizing what we had sixty years ago, you know, and and something that almost all of us have in every neighborhood. But it would just be a really I think firm state level. Um, commitment and signal that that this is the direction we're going now that you know exclusionary zoning just isn't working for us anymore yeah i mean a, a quadplex is not a gigantic building and but no. it is it is something to say just how so many single family house uh neighborhoods just consider this to be such a non-starter uh i mean around here yeah it's you know there's places just r1 for for miles and miles and they would they would consider a duplex a you know a threat, but it's the, to have an entire state flip it like that. That's that would be incredible. 
it, it would be really incredible. And I, I just, you know, it's, I feel like I'm in a weird position because I, I think that this is, is, you know, desperately needed. And I think that it is necessary, but at the same time, I think if it passed, most people who own their housing, most of the housing, housing secure people, it would, it would make almost no difference in their lives immediately. It would make almost no difference in their lives, you know, over the next 10 years. Uh, the, the bill actually has a requirement that no city can assume that it will have more than 3% of its housing stock turnover in 20 years, be redeveloped. And um, that, I believe, was in part put in place to keep pressure on the urban growth boundary maybe the people who build suburban sprawl happy. But at the same time, that's just an indication of how little the immediate built environment would change, even if it's passed tomorrow, right? That You said 3%? 3%, yeah. Wow. that's. I mean, that is, again, 3%, that is a lot of, you know, quadplexes, duplexes, missing middle houses, but that is a pretty severe handbrake. Well, no, I'm sorry. It's not saying that the cities have to limit themselves to three percent. It's saying when they make their plans on how much, how much, how much of the house, how much of the land will be redeveloped, they can't just say, "Oh, well, we're going to assume a hundred percent of the new growth will go into into quads, and we don't need to expand our urban growth boundary." Oh, okay. does that make sense? I'll be honest. Uh, I'm not sure I get it. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. okay, one one more time. They need. Okay, they, they can. Pl- okay, just describe it to me. So, so when when they're going through their assessment, how many, how much growth can we assume is going to happen in the city? And they have to plan out all the time. They have to plan out twenty years and say what's going to happen in the next twenty years. Are we going to need to expand our urban growth boundary, or will all of our growth be absorbed by infill development? They can only assume a three percent um, growth in in um, in the city. Mm. And so the, the, there were some arguments that that is a realistic level of what would actually happen if you legalize fourplex everywhere, that you would only see 3% of the housing stock turn over into fourplexes or triplexes or duplexes. Gotcha. So it's, it's more of an indication that uh, it will happen throughout the city, but it, 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 Portland is not gearing up to say we're ready to take on 10% growth. Yeah, and so if 10% growth happens, then Portland will just be wrong in its planning. And due to this due to this little wrinkle in the law, it'll be wrong in its planning. But it's not going to be limiting the growth to, to below 10% or 3% or whatever. It's just it's going to be planning for 3% growth. I guess what will that mean in practice? If, if, uh, what, what are the repercussions of under-planning? Uh, what, what will that actually do? Well, I think, you know, if if um, if they underplan and, and people really, really, really want fourplexes and, say, 10% of the stock turns over in 20 years, what might happen is Portland expands its urban growth boundary, but then just nothing gets built in the edges around where it just expanded. That's what happened last time. Mm-hmm. It expanded its urban growth boundaries, and nobody wanted to build there because there was no infrastructure, and it was a really long commute. Yeah, so so the urban growth boundary is will take up the slack uh, if... Yeah. It, yeah. Oh, that's 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 a yeah. bit so I, uh, that's a bit of an unfortunate uh i guess thing to go if 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 things don't go to plan but uh i guess yeah. huh um yeah so it sounds like i mean a lot is a lot is happening in the short term both yeah. on on tenant and and production issues uh what how do you feel the long term goal of 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 these groups is how do you feel everything is do you think everyone knows what their next asks are going to be what the next thing to to fight for is going to be in portland 
honestly, no. You know, I think nobody expected this to move so fast. Um, and, and I say so fast, but of course, people have been pushing for this for years and years and years. But I think the fact that we have so much, we had a big turnover in leadership at the state level, and it looks like some of this might actually happen. Everybody's just looking at each other going, oh, my God, what next? What if this all actually goes through? Or what if a substantial portion of it goes through? Or what if the state level fails, but our city version goes through? You know, it's like, what do we do next? And um, I think, you know, what we're going to have to do next is address um, you know the, the the land taxes because uh, uh, are like like we talked about before the the way the land tax is set up right now discourages development twice once for kind of the classic reason where if you tax the the structures that's on the land it's a discouragement to development and then the second level is because of measures five and fifty that it'll tr- trigger a tax reassessment if you do redevelop so I think you know even if we allow fourplexes everywhere tomorrow that will continue to still be a barrier. We're going to have to address that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a couple different things it burns you at. It burns you at incentivizing production, incentivizing yeah. it in the places you you should want it, which are the places mm-hmm. that, that really are asking for the most demand. And then on top of it is, it's incredibly hard to ward off rampant speculation in real estate unless you can actually tax away uh, the, the profits people make. And if you don't have a land tax there are people who are going to be playing the market and buying, flipping land banking and, you know, kind of developing rent, rent gap exploiting and doing all sorts of things to get away with, uh, with, uh, land speculation. And it's, (laughs) and people hate land speculation in the abstract, but it's very hard to get people to actually do what we need to do about it. Yes. Yes. So that will continue to be an issue. We also have, um, we also have a pretty strong neighborhood association groups that where they're all trying to get a historical designation because a historical designation means that every demolition and every new build has to go before the city council. And so, you, you know, if you remove the zoning as a limitation, the rich, well-connected people, they're just going to try to find something else. And, and they've latched onto this historic designation as something they can use to prevent development, even if it's legal by zoning, prevent development, or at least slow it down to the point where only other rich, wealthy people can navigate the obstacle course and actually build in their neighborhoods. And so that would be something, you know, we would need to fight. And I would, I would especially encourage anybody who's legitimately in, in, involved or interested in historical um, preservation to get involved in this, because if they let the NIMBYs co-opt their process, it's going to delegitimize their process. And you might possibly end up with no historical preservation or, you know, historically preserving things that maybe aren't all that historically interesting just because they happen to be lived in or lived near by rich people. Yeah, it seems like what a what a crock if you can make something historically preserved, uh, but it's still your house. You still just mm-hmm. it's a normal house. You can still buy it, sell it, you know, do whatever. Yeah. Like it seems like you should at very least, you know, it's not like people are going to be walking through doing tours of it or something. It seems like you should be giving up some conveniences if it's actually truly historic. You know, you can't live in a museum. Yes. <laughs> Apparently Portland used to have used to require that all historic houses be open to the public for 4 hours per year. <laughs> That's a start. Only 4 hours per yeah. year. Yeah. 
Wow. Only four hours per year, but they would publish, like, they would publish, like, um, they all had to publish in a, in a book, like, this is when we're going to be open. And so people who were really interested in it would actually go and walk through the houses, and apparently it was quite the event, but they got rid of that, which is a shame. But I think they should bring it back. You're right. If they're getting a, a, a public benefit at, you know, kind of public expense, the expense being the opportunity cost of, of everybody else being able to live in that area, uh, yeah, they should be they should be giving something back for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a loss to the public. Uh, and I yeah. mean, it's, I think, four hours a week <laughs> minimum. And like <laughs> ar- ar- around here, they have like uh, the famous Eichler houses. They have Eichler tours. Yeah. They charge money for that. And this is like, oh, yeah. it, this is like, it's strangling local, you know, yeah. I guess rules on, on what is, what are we willing to give up? It's like, well, we can't touch the Eichlers, but like, okay, you should at least make the Eichler tours free and run by the city instead of this private gambit. You know, what, what a crazy, what a crazy, uh, <laughs> what a crazy grift. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and, and as far as like land taxes, I know there's one group up there that, uh, you, you've at least had some, uh, some involvement with, uh, common ground, which is like, they're, yeah. they're all about that. Are these, are these, uh, what, what's, what's their game plan for actually getting, uh, Oregon uh, on the page of land taxes. Well, they have they have a bill that actually just passed out of the Senate. Just got passed by the Senate um, to commission a study on the effects of a land value tax, or potentially just shifting some of the burden from the structure to the land in like a revenue neutral way. So nobody would necessarily you know lose out pay more taxes at first, and, and nothing would change at first. But over time it would start to, um, you know, incentivize all the things that Georgia loves. And so, of course, this is just a commission to study something that might possibly happen in the future. But, um, it, it, you know, we're getting some movement on it. And, and just to say, if it's revenue neutral, but more of the taxes go to land, think about who that helps. It would help homeowners in kind of modest houses on cheap land, which are poorer people. And it would yeah. fall more heavily on people with, you know, houses on more expensive land, which are the more well-off homeowners. Like that, really should be considered as a major win for equity. Uh, so that's a that's an exciting uh, movement. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It would be a major win for equity. It's also maybe a reason why it would be super a super tough push at the state level. But you know, um, you know, I, I never thought we'd get the statewide. Uh, rent control either so but we got that so wow it, it's definitely worth pushing for yeah yeah i mean and you look at the tragedy of when you have houses on very cheap land and they still have to pay property tax on just yeah. this i mean that's how you get a lot of you know cycles of foreclosure it's it can be really brutal when you get people uh in kind of a minimal level of uh, shelter in some in some kind of suburban uh, in, you know, more uh, low opportunity places, and they still can be on the verge of being foreclosed on. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty wild. So yeah, yeah. So um, I I feel like we're kind of you know closing up on an hour here. Any, any other any other things going on in in your backyard that you think are uh, worth drawing attention to? Um, you know, well, there's I I think even if these things go through, there's there's other ways that cities can um the the wealthy neighborhoods can can still remain exclusionary it's i think i think there'll be still a lot for us to do i'm sure we haven't even anticipated half the things that these smart people and their smart lawyers are going to think of to to keep closing the gates while we try to keep opening them and you know i think 
people people like to say that gimmies only talk about zoning, but zoning is kind of just a, a a shorthand way of talking about all the things that you and I have talked about this hour. It's, it's a way of, you know, anything from the historical preservation to environmental review to um, to taxes to the to the actual zoning itself. These are all ways that these people have shut out, um, you know, opportunity for anybody but them to enjoy um, the significant investments that the public has made in their built environment. Here's one one question for you. You were talking earlier about about you know raising your family in, in Portland. Mm-hmm. That's that's always one major way that people talk about preserving single family ho- houses is saying that is the only way people can uh, can raise families. You know, it's like if you yeah. don't have, if you don't have a single family house, that's not really a family home. Like, how do how do you feel about that? I guess from your personal experience, are you able to, I guess, uh, you know, push back on that at all? I just. I have to. I have to admit, of all the things that I hear, that fills me with such rage and sadness because there are so many families right now in your town living in apartments. You just might not think of them as like what you think of when you think of a family because maybe they are a different color than you, or maybe they are a different income level than you. But they're. I mean, I, I live next to a three-story apartment building, and it is full of families. And I don't know, they don't seem any less legitimate than me just because they don't literally have a backyard. And, um, you know, p- people who, families are renters and, and families live in apartment buildings. And to say stuff like that just completely erases a, a very large percentage of the families in your city right now. And I, 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 I could go my whole life and never hear that again. <laughs> Yeah, and if they're not if they're not living in your own back, like in your own neighborhood, and uh, mm-hmm. and you're ignoring them, it could mean service workers that are commuting into your area. You know, they oh, yeah. they, they have their own families that you can yeah. very easily just yeah. It's just it's and and think about all the extra hours uh, oh, yeah. of, of commuting that you are you're sensing all these people to, and they're keeping away from their own family. It's it's such a weird blind spot for all these for all these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I think I said my sister lives a hundred blocks east of me and she's a nurse and, you know, all of, all of, a lot of my friends are teachers and they live kind of out near her and they're married to radiology technicians or, you know, they're all like other nurses and, and that level of, um, of, you know, like you said, service workers, but well, but educated, you know, middle-class service workers and they all have extremely long commutes and families and it's really it's really tough it's it's just i think you know if they had had options like a duplex or a triplex or a a bungalow court you know they would have taken those options they would have in a heartbeat but that just wasn't available to them so now they have long commutes and less time with their families yeah, and I, I just hate the discourse just warping yeah. our brains of, like, it's just the idea, like, in a place that doesn't have a housing crisis, like, a service worker is just, it's just somebody with a job. But, like, when housing becomes unaffordable, it's, like, the people who obviously can't afford to work here on their salary is, like, a di- subclass mm-hmm. of citizen. And it's just such a weird dehumanizing way to talk about the people in our, our own communities. It's, but it's just so per- pervasive and, uh, 
Yeah, it's like in you can you have people to say like, oh yeah, we need a way to bring the service workers in to to do our work for us. But like, mm-hmm. they're not just people anymore. It's 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 crazy. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I'm sure it's self reinforcing. If you don't live next to them, you don't have to think about them, and then it's just a lot easier to start that next uh, cycle of dehumanization. Yeah, I mean, I feel in Portland, I I mean, it is not. I mean, Silicon Valley right here, I feel, is the most broken place in the world. Uh, and, I mean, P- Portland, uh, it feels like people are escaping here to go there. I mean, people, uh, friends, move from Palo Alto to Portland. So it's nice that you are dealing with stuff before things get so, so, so broken, as opposed to, you know, when things are past all chance of, of dealing with it. So uh, nice job, I guess, being ahead of the curve on, on that. And let's... let's. Well, we're- we're not out of the woods yet. You know, we are at a real decision point. We are at a real, a real tipping point. I think, you know, people are talking about it. It is a part of almost every conversation we're having. I think people are aware of what the trade-offs are and what the issues are. So, so you know, my fellow EMBs and then politicians and um, journalists and everything have done a great job of educating people. So I feel like we all have to make that choice kind of together. But whatever whatever we do, it is making a choice, and we are choosing either to go the route of the Bay Area and you know push more and more people out, or hopefully choosing something a little bit better that's more inclusive. And I think that is still within our grasp, and it really would not take um, as much, maybe as it would in the Bay Area, as much of a change for anybody. And if we all just you know just duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, and we can, it's, it's like we can, we can do it. It is within our grasp. We have been talking to Holly Balcom here about Portland on the Henry George program. I'm Mark Molino. You can find the website for the show, seethecat.org, where all previous episodes are. This is a presentation of Casey Shoe Stanford. Stanford.